Welcome to Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners, the podcast for dentists who are ready to take their practice to new heights. Join your host, Stan Kinder, who has worked with the profession over four decades and now represents practice owners interested in exploring a relationship with a DSO. On the show, he explores ways to grow your income and increase the value of your practice. Expect thoughtful conversations with influential guests who are pioneers in the dental industry. From insightful dental consultants to brilliant marketing experts, from accomplished dental practice owners to innovative dental manufacturers, this podcast will bring you a diverse range of perspectives. Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners is here to equip you with the tools and information you need to thrive. Your practice's future begins right here. And now, here's your host, Stan Kinder. Uh, hello, everybody. I'd like to w- welcome you to another uh, episode of the podcast, Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. Uh, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Dr. John Meese. Uh, Dr. Meese is uh, the founder of a group practice, former senior executive in a DSO, and uh, has one of the nation's leading uh, coaching and consulting businesses. Dr. Meese, the goal of these podcasts, from my perspective, is basically to expose the listeners to um, thought leaders subject matter experts that can give them sort of tips on how they can be more successful in their uh, own practice environment. And uh, based on my sense and knowledge of your background and experience, I think you're ideally suited. So that is a starting point. Uh, why don't you just sort of tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you started in your journey in dentistry to where you are today? All right. Well, thanks, Dan, for inviting me to be on the podcast. Uh, it's really a great honor. So I appreciate that. So my dental story started with my great-grandfather, actually. Uh, I'm a fourth-generation dentist. My great-grandfather had two sons. Both of them became dentists. My grandfather had three sons. Two of them became dentists. And then there's me. So I graduated in 1986 from dental school, started a practice, bought a practice, actually, that had failed. I bought it from the bank uh, in a small town in Iowa. And that was right when the farm depression was going on. Uh, The commodity prices collapsed. The farm economy collapsed. The banking industry that served farmers uh, largely collapsed. It was a really tough time to get started. So, But we got things rolling. It was pretty tough for a while, but we got things rolling. Eventually built that into a practice. Uh, my main practice had 21 ops, uh, so it was a big operation. Uh, we grew that to 13 locations in Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Along that way, uh, I joined the executive team of a large DSO, first as chief development officer, and then as president. So uh, part of what I was doing was driving the growth of the company. We went from 50 to 120 locations in the six years I was there. So then uh, I started a consulting company along the way, and and that's what I spend most of my time doing now. I do uh, have a DSO that supports a group of practices in Oklahoma, and so I stay plenty busy. Yeah, it it certainly sounds like it. Tell me a little bit about what led you to establish uh, the Team Training Institute, and maybe if you could also talk a little bit about Spark, how they're alike or different? Sure. So uh, what started me to put together Team Training Institute was uh, and its various predecessors um, was that I had really struggled to crack the code on how to be more productive and more profitable as a dental practice. And I was lucky enough to be in a room with uh, with a bunch of people where I had a chance to kind of get with, understand what their numbers were. And so I put together 
together a, a really a mastermind group of these people that were much bigger producers than I was. Uh, and I started, we started sharing ideas. And so I was learning from all these fantastic people. And I started to package that, first of all, to kind of feed it back to them, because often people who are, uh, are really high performers don't know they're high performers and don't understand how they do it. It's, it comes very naturally to them. So then to see it packaged back, and, and they were really the ones that, that encouraged me to go out and teach the profession that so that other people don't have to have the same struggles learning, the same you know trial and error, which is slow and expensive, and uh, so that people can get really a head start on their career and get in a head start on their financial situation. Of course, the financial situation of dentists has really changed uh, with the reduction in reimbursement and the increase in cost and the uh, workforce shortage. I mean, it's a very different economic financial situation today than it was 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah, and uh, it went without question. How many years ago did you start in down a sort of coaching slash consulting path? 2004. Okay, so yeah, you've uh, certainly been in it for, uh, for a little while. If you will, uh, talk to me a little bit about sort of what are the core principles uh, that you that you focus on uh, to sort of, you know, you mentioned uh, that you formed this mastermind group to try and sort of, I guess, understand at a deeper level, uh, you know, what are the elements that lead to success? I'm, I'm curious uh, how you would describe those. Well, it is pretty simple in a way, but it's pretty complex in a way as well. So really every single successful practice that I know, one that's growing rapidly, they all have a handful of things in common. Uh, number one is they have a very clear vision of where they're going. They have a values-based organization and they absolutely can tell you what their plan is, what their goals are, that kind of thing. So leadership, I'll, I'll put that into one category is in leadership. Uh, next, any practice to be successful has to have patient flow. We have to have enough patients coming by for us to get enough at-bats, so to say. And then it has to have good case acceptance. So that includes diagnosing, balanced diagnostic assertiveness, means team case acceptance process. So when we have if we have a flow of patients and we're showing them the treatment that they want and need and they're getting a chance to buy it, uh, if we've got that fixed, then the last thing to work on is efficient delivery. So efficient delivery, you would be stunned, Stan, how, well, you wouldn't, but a lot of people would be stunned the range of uh, performance when it comes to different clinicians. Oh, yeah, I'd say it's incredible. <laughs> so we can look at productivity per hour, for instance, and productivity per hour in the, the dentists who come into our organization and are, who are in our organization ranges probably from maybe 350 an hour to over 2,000 an hour. You know, I mean, it's a range of six or seven times. It's it's absolutely amazing, the range. And so if we have efficient delivery, that's the, the people that are hitting those big numbers, you know, have very, very efficient offices. They are doing doctored things all day long and they have a, a, a team that's supporting them to do that. So those are kind of the key principles. If we if we want to get a single location humming, those are the things, you know, to start and work on. Sure. I know that uh, uh, hygiene is a big component of what the uh, what the Institute does uh, with, uh, with Wendy Briggs. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, through, through this original group, that's how I met Wendy. She came into my office and helped our team understand how to be better at offering patients, uh, particularly preventive dental services. We weren't very good at it. I thought we were, but we weren't. Uh, she taught us how to do it a lot better, and it was so impactful in my practice, uh, and she had been so impactful in others. And 
and we shared so many clients the same. Uh, that's how we ended up forming the partnership with the Team Training Institute. And so hygiene certainly is a big component. And the reason why we hygiene is often one of the first things that we work on in a practice is because it's it can be changed so quickly. So we can have one of our hygiene coaches in an office doing a training for that office. And the very next day, their hygienists perform better, 50 to 100% better. So it's a dramatic change and it's very, very fast. So we like that because over the years, I've been in literally hundreds of dental practices and so often the hygiene departments that are woefully underperforming. And it, it's, uh, I, you know, for the practice owner, uh, having a hygiene department that's functioning at a high level is really kind of the gravy train because it's not something that requires their direct involvement yep. on a patient-to-patient basis, obviously, other than getting exams done. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and our process really doesn't tr- include the number of visits, so the number of exams don't go up. number of exams stay steady. It's the productivity per visit that goes up. And you're, you're absolutely right. If you think about hygiene, if hygiene goes up, how much of that increase goes to the bottom line? I'll a lot. <laughs> saying you got some supplies you got to pay for, but hygiene supplies are a lot cheaper than doctor supplies, right? So maybe that's three or 4% of, of uh, collections. Um, you're going to have some type of incentive for hygienists to improve their performance. So that's going to be a few percentage points, but the rest of it falls right to the bottom line. And the doctor really doesn't have to do anything different. So that's one of the reasons like we that we want to start there is because there's such a big boost in productivity and all the future good stuff comes from an increase in productivity, right? All the improvements in technology, all the improvements in the patient experience, all the improvements in staff salaries and bonuses, all of that comes from from the new profits. The, the current profits are already spent. The new yep. profits is where all that comes from. I agree 100%. And, and in my experience, uh, um, a better served hygiene patient is generally a better consumer of other services in a practice. Yeah. And, and you know, most importantly, if we get that part of it nailed, the general dental health of our patients is going to be on an upward swing. Right. If we really get that nailed, that's the most important thing is that we're serving our patients. Um, but so we don't have to think about production. We don't have to think about numbers. We just have to do the, the right thing for the patient that's right in front of us right now. Right. Uh, and that's what we help people do. Yeah. And, and, and it's kind of, kind of interesting because I, I I think that's really kind of a central concept to what you're describing is better serving the patient. A lot of times I've seen practices resist making constructive changes because they perceive that it's somehow profit driven or money driven. Uh, And the reality is the money and the profit comes from really doing a better job for your patients. Yeah. And and I think if our teams feel like we're doing things as business owners that are just about profit, uh, I can see why there's resistance. Talk about if we can align our our philosophy, if we can align our systems, so that's win win win. First and foremost, uh, the patient is better served. The patient has more options. The patient gets to choose. And if we do that well, then the team can win and the practice can win. Yeah, and uh, you you mentioned um, you know including 
some kind of invasion that enables the hygienists to do better if they do better. I, you know, I've seen uh, really profound changes where uh, when hygienists get converted from sort of a, uh, you know, the typical hourly compensation program to being paid as producer, um, and the same way that you would an associate uh, in the in the in the practice. So I'm, I uh, certainly think that's uh, that's the right way to go. It might be helpful, John, if you could sort of describe when a new client practice comes to you, sort of how does that working relationship unfold? You know, what do you do first? What do you do next? And yeah. uh, and so forth. Yeah. Great question. So I'll answer it both for Spark, which is our program that works with group practices, as well as with the Team Training Institute that works with practices of all sizes uh, in different ways. So the first thing that we want to do is we want to have uh, an assessment. We want to figure out what's going on in the practice. So how does the team take a look at that? How does the doctor, what's their point of view? And then we dig into the data. And so we have all of that information. We can start figuring out where we can make a change with the least amount of effort that's going to have the biggest impact. So each practice has a customized plan. We don't have a, you, you, you start at step one and step two, step, we don't do that because that's too slow. It takes practices forever to have an impact. So if we can start where there's the most amount of opportunity with the least amount of effort, then we get really fast results. We get momentum. We get the team on board. We start getting our culture right. And that's when things really start to take off. Yep. Can you describe uh, maybe um, one or two significant successes that uh, your clients have achieved? Maybe talk about where they were when you started with them and you know where they got to over time yeah i can talk about a practice in uh southern louisiana uh started with us and they had a nice practice they had a they had a, a flagship location i think they had maybe 14 ops uh they were probably doing you know four three and a half million maybe something like that um and that we've been working with them for you know five years probably uh but now they have six locations they're over 12 million in revenue is a completely organization a completely different organization uh the founder who was you know working really really hard clinically to make those numbers uh now sees patients one day a week and that's just because he likes it he doesn't need to he sees patients one day a week and and you know to see, he enjoys dentistry so much more now than he did when he was practicing full-time because his numbers really don't matter in the size of that organization right so there's no pressure he just goes in and takes care of care patients and just has fun that's all that's a that's great yeah i i uh um you know i'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh uh the michael gerber uh sort of e-myth uh, yeah. uh concept and you know one of the things i've found in in actually the vast majority of dental practices that i've been involved with over the years is that the other dentist really tends to think of his practice as a job you know as a place where they practice their profession as opposed to thinking about it not only that but also as a business yep. and 
one that can benefit from systems and process and and uh, really doing all the kinds of things that any business in any discipline need in order to be successful. In my latest book, I talk about the principle that dentists should use three different hats when they're making decisions. One of those hats is as a clinician, and that's what you were just describing. You know, the second hat is as a business manager, and that's the hat that's hard for dentists to wear oftentimes, and it's hard for them to wear because they have no training in it. Most of them have no experience in it. You know, we were trained as clinicians. We weren't trained as business people. And so, but the ones that do the best think of their practice as a business, think about the profitability of the business. Um, And of course, obviously, the way to increase that is to raise the impact that you have on your patients and your community's dental health. Uh, And the third hat is that of the investor hat. Uh, I was just, I spoke over the weekend at the Serona World uh, Conference, which is uh, a collection of of really high-tech companies selling the newest uh, doohickeys and thingamajigs. And and as I was looking at that, some all of the technologies I saw were were really amazing. It's just, it's hard to imagine how fast things have, have improved and evolved. And then I was looking at the cost of some of these things, and I'm th- and I'm trying to make. I was using my investor hat, and I was thinking, okay, if I invest in this, is there going to be a return, or is it just cool and fun? Right. right. <laughs> so you you have to. Not that you wouldn't want to invest in something that's cool and fun, but at least you want to know. I'm just, I'm not going to make any money from, from this from doing this. I'm not going to make any more money, but it's going to be fun. So I'm going to do it to to keep my my passion about the profession alive. You know. So there is a reason to do it, but I think you should take the time to understand what's the return on the dollar put into those kind of investments. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move a little bit uh, into the the uh, this whole notion of sort of dental transitions. And, you know, I've, I, I, I always tell dentists, I have yet to meet a dentist that didn't tra- have a, a need to transition the ownership at some point. No dentist lives forever or practice forever. Every and, practice will sell. Yeah. And at the primary driver of value in every practice is the bottom line. It's the profit that it generates. Whether you're selling your practice to another dentist or whether you're selling it to a, to a DSO buyer. And so, I, you know, the other thing I would say is uh, the highest performing practices that I've, I've encountered over my 40 years of working with the profession is are those that work with external coaches, mentors, oh. consultants to really uh, elevate uh, uh, the performance in the, in the practice. And so that does two things. One is it, it helps drive current income to a higher level, while at the same time increasing the equity value of the practice. So I, I, A, I'd be curious about what your thoughts are on that. Uh, specifically, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about sort of the disruptive uh, nature of the DSO phenomenon in terms of practice values and so on. Yeah, very good. So I totally agree. Uh, Every high performer, I don't care what profession you're in, every high performer is getting coaching. You know, the the best golfers in the world have coaches helping him with little pieces. I was just watching a show on LeBron James, and they were talking about his coach on on uh, basically mobility 
you know, it makes sure that his joint mobility doesn't decrease as he ages. And so every high performer has a coach. And so if, if there's not enough evidence in dentistry, just look at any other profession and it's it's where the high performers are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you've obviously been involved in buying and selling practices over the course of your career, as well as you mentioned that you uh, uh, were kind of the chief business development guy uh, for the DSO that you're associated with. Talk a little bit uh, about how you have seen sort of practice sales slash transitions evolve over the course of the last uh, maybe 5, 10, 15 years um, and how they're different today from where they were 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, it has certainly been a wild ride because the standard way that practices transition has completely changed. You know, back in the day, it was old dentist hires young dentist to work for a couple of years. The old dentist retires, young dentist buys practice out. Yeah. You know, that that was how it was for decades. Well, it, it doesn't work like that very often anymore. Um, so some of the things that have changed is uh, outside investors, investors. Uh, Investors from outside the dental industry, private equity groups, uh, investing in dental groups. Uh, and that has changed the equation a lot. It's changed how we look at practice value uh, a lot. And because of certain economics, DSOs uh, are offering more than a traditional sale would offer. Now, the offering more, as you know, Stan, because you've worked through these deals with many people, uh, some of it's real money, some of it's maybe money some of it just looks like money <laughs> yeah. uh, and so uh so the the deals are complicated anybody considering going into a deal like that you know do get professional advice do get sell side advice from somebody wise because so that you understand what's the real money what's the maybe money and what's the not money but looks and smells like it so the interesting thing for me is how many people have decided to sell their profit stream forever for basically one check, a maybe check down the road, and the looks like a check way down the road. Uh, that's been surprising to me. And I think DSO world, which I'm a part of, and I, I support that completely, but from an individual business owner selling it, I think unless you're really reaching close to retirement age, I'm not sure it's such a great idea to sell off your profits forever yeah. Yeah. for four years, maybe uh, five years, maybe of income. It's It just, it really does doesn't uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, and I, it's that's kind of an interesting observation because when I first got involved in the DSO space uh, 10, 15 years ago, the vast majority of sellers were late career folks. You know, yeah. people that really were, you know, they may not have been ready to hang up the handpiece today, but they knew that that day was coming and yeah. kind of were attracted to the idea of having a, a predictable exit strategy in place. And one that gave them some protections against downside risk between where they were today when they transacted and where they expected to be when they retired. But then over the course of the last, I'd say maybe five to seven years, it seems to me like that that trend line has been moving much younger. I totally agree. You're seeing a lot of mid-career folks. Yeah. And I think there's a couple reasons for it in my judgment. I think 
one is that owning and managing a practice is increasingly complex every day and involves a lot of effort in areas aside from the delivery of dental care. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't have necessarily the appetite for it, A, or B, um, feel like, you know, they would be able to do better in an environment where there's uh, resources and support uh, to manage a lot of the non-clinical care uh, elements uh, of the practice. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think that's reasonable. I, I agree with what you say, because fundamentally, and, you know, in my experience, the more sophisticated dentists realize this fairly quickly in the conversation is, you know, they're selling their profit for a, a value that is pretty much a finite number of years. And if they're going to practice beyond that, you know, begins to raise the question, does it make good economic sense? Yeah. And it may or may not, depending on what their particular circumstances and desires are. Sure. And, you know, there, there are people, dentists, who sold their practice for some cash and some equity and came out really on the equity side. There are some that have done that, ended up with zero on the equity side as well. So it appears, because the organizations are bigger, that, that there's less risk. Well, I disagree with that completely. There is definitely uh, definitely risk there to contend with and to understand before you enter into a, a, a transaction. Um, you know, the promise of all this uh, back office support, um, which practices, which DSOs, um, you know, can help with, but that's not the only way to get help, right? right. So you can get help by a company like ours who will come in, evaluate your systems, put better systems in, build the, the productivity of the office, build a profitability office. We can do that and you don't sell off your profits. So for most practices that just kind of don't want to deal with the business side, getting a good consulting partner is should be a very, very attractive option uh, because you get to keep all the profits that you create. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you at all. And, you know, going back to sort of the fundamental valuation differences between, you know, historically what happened when a dentist sold to another dentist, in my experience, the, lim the limiting factor really were with the bank. You know, most dentists that buy a practice rely on bank financing, and the banks had ceilings as to how much they would lend against uh, the practice's revenue. And, you know, historically, that's been on the range of 68% of revenue, sometimes higher. And, you know, DSOs come in and it's not uncommon to see, you know, a DSO put together, uh, you know, a, a total enterprise value package, of, you know, two to as much as three, three and a half times revenue. So pretty, pretty profound differences there. But as you say, it's important to sort of understand, you know, what's tangible, right? what falls into that maybe category. That three times, there's there's some real money there, but there's some maybe money there, and there's usually quite a bit of looks like money, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, with a dentist that I work with that are interested in exploring a DSO relationship, I, I say that I, I, first and foremost, you need clarity about why you're even in the conversation. What is it that you want to achieve as an outcome? And then two, make sure you spend some time thinking about whether or not it's a good cultural fit. You know, are you going to 
be partnering with people that you would be pleased to do business with and that you like and trust because that's a you know it's it's like anything it's a marriage you're gonna you're gonna be in business with these folks for a while uh given that most of the dso's require typically uh on the low side four years and i'm seeing increasingly five to six year post-transaction yeah. employment agreements yeah yeah no that's that's absolutely right you're going to be working for the man and and remember to not just know the business development people you know get to know the operations people that you're going to be work with working with after the transition so you know most dso's have really charming wonderful business development people that can talk the language well and are nice and sane one because i used to be one of those yeah so did i (laughs) Um, so you know but get to know the operations people because the business development people they're on to the next you know the next deal and you won't really interact with them very much uh, after a transaction is done so get to know a little deeper into the organization than most people do so you get a, a sense of how they do it also talk to other people who've already done a transaction with the dso so find out there, there, there's often a gap between what DSOs say they're going to do and what they actually do. You know, they're, they're, there's and and that's any organization. I'm not picking on DSOs because I, I think DSOs are. Uh, I think some of them are amazing companies that do a, a tremendous job for for dental health and for teams and for doctors. So I'm I'm not picking on them, but I'm just saying they're. I want to understand what that gap is, and yeah. the best way to find that out is by talking to other people who've already done a transaction. Yep. Do your homework. Do your due diligence. Yep. And I, you know, I tell dentists all the time. I said look you know it's important that you get good advice and counsel on your side of the table most dentists sell a practice once in their in their lifetime yep and but they're not particularly informed and and you know i tell them i said look you need to understand that the people on the other side of the table are very sophisticated because they do this all day every day Yep. And so it's important for you to kind of get some help in terms of thinking through and uh, and understanding the issues. Yeah. And John, I've taken an awful lot of your time. I really appreciate you You're making yourself available. This is uh, really, I think, super valuable content from my perspective. A couple of final questions. Uh, one is talk to me a little bit about, you know, how uh, you charge your practice for your consulting services you know what does that what does that look like you know one of the things i encounter all the time are practices that are interested in exploring whether or not they're a viable candidate for a dso partnership and not uncommonly they are because they're too small there's not enough profit and i i generally point those those folks to people like you uh with a view towards trying to kind of elevate things in their in their practice so talk a little bit about that if you will so we offer a variety of consulting services and courses and trainings so how we think of our pricing mostly is we want people to get their uh their whatever their investment is in consulting we want them to have it back in increased revenue in three months so sometimes it happens much faster than that and if people follow out of our advice you know three months is pretty easy to hit um, that way the rest of the nine months all that increase goes directly into their pocket and they can use it for all the the great things that they you know all the technology and all the all the advances like i said all the good stuff comes from new profits and that's what we help people 
people get. Yeah, that's great. And lastly, for those listeners that may have an interest in uh, learning more and talking with you more, tell me uh, what's the best way for them to uh, to reach in. Well, they can go to our website. The website is thetti.com. And if you go to that website, you can, you can sign up for all kinds of stuff and that will get you into a sequence that our team will reach out to you and to learn a little bit more about your practice and how we might be able to help you. Uh, the other way is you can call the office and let me see here. Let me pull up the number. I don't know the number off the top of my head. <laughs> I'm looking at it on my line. All right. So that number is 877-732-2124. Uh, and you can ask to speak to one of our program advisors. Melissa or Tate would be uh, delighted to learn a little bit more about your practice and, and to see if we might be able to help. Uh, and most practices we can, but sometimes the practices have unique things that we know other people that help them with better than we can. So then we can ha- give you a good referral, a very thoughtful referral. So that's what we do. Two very quick uh, last questions. One is, do you have any particular thoughts or approach to sort of the, the marketing uh, proposition, new patient generation? And then two, I guess, any final thoughts or uh, pearls of wisdom that you would uh, share before we wrap it up. Sure. So when it comes to to patient flow, I'm going to call it that, which is a mix of existing patients and new patients. Uh, we have an 11 step algorithm that we walk practices through that helps get helps get their patient flow where it needs to be. Typically, when practices come to work with us, they're full very quickly. So uh, when we look at patient flow, case acceptance, and efficient delivery, right? Those are the three things that we got to have in place. Patient Patient flow is the easiest one. Uh, so the first step on the on the on the patient flow algorithm is make sure we're retaining the ones that we have. Yeah, right. So that's reappointment, recall, recovery, reactivation. So we're keeping the ones we have, which means the load on new ones, which are more expensive and more work, uh, is less if we keep the ones we have. Remember, I dentists focus on new patients a lot. But the reality is that 70% of restorative work comes out of recall hygiene. So the new patient bit is not as big as most dentists think it, think it is. So that's why we want, we start with retention. Um, and if we retain the patients, we're off, we're in a much better place. Next thing is, and I'll just give the first two here because just for the time limited. So the next one is to fix the phones. Average dental practice only answers 60% of the call, incoming calls during normal business hours. And they have no idea that they're not doing it better than that. There's a huge huge performance perception gap. Practices perceive that they're answering almost all of them, uh, when in fact, it, the average is about 60%. So we have a whole series of trainings on how we get that up to 90%. Uh, and when you do that, when you go from average to 90%, that just means you're answering 50% more calls. If you're answering 50% more calls and one in every 10 is a new patient, boom, you know, it doesn't take long before your new patient flow is going up dramatically. Yeah. So as you go down the list, there's multiple things. I look at PPOs as, as a marketing vehicle. It's a way to get patients into your practice. Uh, that's like number nine on, on the list, right? It's way down. People get into it before they've done everything else. And now uh, I'm sure you're seeing this as well. People are now getting out or yeah, dropping yeah, them recently and 
and you know the uh, when PPO first arrived on the scene, the premise was you know you take our discounts, we're going to give you a lot more bodies in the chairs. Yeah. Well, now that almost every practice participates in PPOs, that increased patient volume doesn't come. So yeah. you get the discounts, but you don't really get the patients. And if you do everything on our patient flow algorithm, you, you know you'll have more patients than you need. You'll be full, and that's why I say you know most of the practices when they work with us very soon they're going to have their they have to deal with do i expand do i add another location do i build a bigger location they have, they have to deal with that question or go the other route or or some combination of them and the other route is to drop the first ppo that has the lowest number of bodies in your practice see what happens things go smoothly and it still stays performing well drop the next one yeah well and john again i wanted to say thank you and uh to the listening audience i wanted to give my unqualified uh, recommendation and endorsement of Dr. Meese and uh, the Team Training Institute and Spark. They're, uh, they're really uh, extremely uh, good at what they do. And uh, any dentist will be well served by, to take advantage of, of the services that you offer. Uh, so once again, thanks. And uh, I really appreciate it. I'll make a, a recording of this once uh, the production of folks get it all finalized. Uh, uh, we'll get it in your hands and uh, um, I hope you have a great rest of the week and uh, look forward to talking again at some point in the future. Well, thanks, Dan. It was great, good to talk with you again and, and thanks for the kind words and I appreciate all that you've done over over quite a few years for our profession and helping Dennis deal with some of the, the business complexities that, that exist and so appreciative of your work as well. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been Success Strategies for Dental Practice Owners. We hope you gain valuable insights and practical wisdom that will guide you on your journey to success with your practice. To visit Stan Kinder on the web, go to www.everythingdso.com. If you found today's episode helpful, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an opportunity to hear brilliant insights from dental industry insiders. Remember, whether you're planning your next strategic move, seeking ways to enhance your practice's value or dreaming of expanding your dental empire, we're here to guide you on your way to success.